turning to Matthew chapter 1. We began this morning in a series to go through the book of Matthew. So this is message number two in the series entitled Three Witnesses. And we're going to be looking at the rest of chapter 1, which is verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. And he knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, Jesus' association with people like Matthew uh, is what gave many in Israel reason to reject him as Messiah. Matthew was a tax collector. He was despised and hated by the loyal Israelites. Um, To the patriotic Israelite, he was a traitor. To the religious Israelite, he was the worst sort of sinner, like a prostitute or even a Gentile. Now, this wasn't the only thing that the religious elite would find objectionable about Jesus of Nazareth, but nevertheless, Jesus called Matthew and made him one of his 12 apostles. And Matthew wrote an account of Jesus of Nazareth to show that he was indeed and is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one in the Old Testament. And so he begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, the genealogy is a sort of a legal record of ancestry that traced his lineage um, to David, to Judah, to Jacob, to Isaac, and to Abraham. And Matthew framed this genealogy as a summary history of Israel. So he goes from Abraham um, to the tribes, to the kingship of David, to the exile, to the coming of Christ. His purpose is to show the place of Christ in the unfolding purpose of God for his people Israel and as promised to Abraham to the nations of the world. Now, one of the ways that Matthew tells his story through genealogy is by use of annotations, those uh, authorial comments that are inserted at certain places. He links people like Judah and Jeconiah in terms of the kingship to be ultimately fulfilled by God's anointed son. He connects the women in this list and Uriah the Hittite to highlight the faithful living according to God's word and the inclusion of the Gentile nations in the salvation through Jesus Christ. So the good news of Jesus coming into the world to save sinners of Israel and of the nations of the world 
is the full message of good news. Now, the connections with the Old Testament and the history of Israel are obvious right from the very start. And for instance, think of all these names that are given at the beginning of this chapter, and he doesn't really explain who any of the people are. Other than just making a few comments here and there, he, he doesn't tell us what their place or their significance is to Jesus um, other than being in this descent. So this gospel is obviously intended to be read with the Old Testament and as the continuation of it. So all the prophecies and the promises that, that have gone before, they're not done away and some new plan started, but rather the fulfillment of these is seen as through Christ. Now also Matthew sets the expectation for this gospel that he will continue to connect Jesus to the Old Testament and the history of Israel. So now we come to the rest of chapter number one, and this is where Matthew gives us a very brief account of the birth of Jesus. And as you look at it, it's not exactly an account of the birth of Jesus, though he does mention it as much as he's focusing more on significant events surrounding the birth and the birth itself as a um, culmination, um, though his birth, again, it, it is stated. So when we combine this brief account of the birth of Christ with the genealogy that comes before it in chapter 1, we get three witnesses to Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah. Now, his Messiahship will be confirmed in similar ways um, throughout the gospel. As you look at this birth account, it's obvious that Matthew gives us the most about Joseph in this account. Now, the lineage of Joseph is already established in the genealogy that he had given, but in this particular part of the chapter, he's called a just man and he's called a son of David. Mary also is vindicated in this passage in a number of ways, and together they are presented as faithful Israelites keeping God's word. And so they do not miss the coming of the Messiah. Some might say it'd be awful difficult for Mary to miss the coming of the Messiah, but they do not miss the coming of the Messiah. All right, so as we look at this last part, we're going to look at verses 18 and 19, where we see the espoused couple are challenged, and in verses 20 to 25, where there is an angelic visitor to Joseph um, to explain things. So we'll start here with verse number 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. So this is the brief account that Matthew's going to give of Jesus' birth. And he starts out talking about how that Mary was espoused or betrothed to Joseph. Now, around the time of the first century, the Jews followed essentially a three-stage process for marriage. So stage one was called the arrangement, and these all had um, certain Hebrew terms associated with them, but essentially it meant the arrangement. Um, what the arrangement was, was generally the, the fathers of different families would um, come together and arrangement was made um, between the families for the marriage of a son and a, and a daughter um, in the future. And typically this was done when they were quite young. Um, there were even 
There were even um, cases in, in many of the communities in Israel where they would make use um, of a matchmaker um, to try to, to match up um, the children, you know, for marriage and that sort of thing. And so the children were usually quite young, and, and this stage, this arrangement stage, was not something that was viewed as unbreakable, um, but it was considered, um, was considered a contractual agreement that they had entered into. Stage two is um, what could be called the engagement. Now, this would be much later, um, after the children were grown. And the engagement typically involved a public ceremony under the canopy. Uh, It included a written contract, and usually in this contract, it would include pledges of commitment. Um, It would also include listings of what was being brought to the marriage, uh, however many chickens and however many goats and and all these sort of things, changes of garments and what what have you, um, any sort of money and uh, business about the dowry. And all that was usually taken care of in this contract of the engagement. And at this point in the process, the two were considered betrothed uh, which was a which was a much more um, legally binding and official situation than what we typically refer to when we refer to people that get engaged. Um, they were betrothed, and they would actually be legally standing as husband and wife, but they did not yet live together while the marriage preparations were being made. And this could last from a few months to uh, a year. I think a year was pretty common um, for this stage of the marriage um, to last. And the engagement could be broken, but it did require an official bill of, divor- of divorcement to be written and to be given in order to break it. And then you come to stage three. Stage three was the official wedding ceremony under the canopy, followed by the seven-day feast. And, of course, the couple would then live together as husband and wife in the house that the groom had prepared for them. So understanding just sort of the the customary practice of the time, this would put Joseph and Mary in stage two of the process. And, And as you read Matthew's description, it's obvious that this was the customary practice and this is what he is referring to at the time with Joseph and Mary. So they were essentially espoused or betrothed or engaged in that second stage um, of the marriage and had not yet come together or lived together as husband and wife. So they were still in what would be considered the preparation stage, but there would be Uh, a contract that would be in place, a commitment that would be in place, and they are referred to as husband and wife. So it tells us that in this situation, Mary was found to be with child or discovered to be. Now, that sounds a little bit um, suspicious. Um, She was discovered um, as if there was some secret or that she was attempting to hide, Uh, but that's actually not what's taking place. If you remember in the Luke's account of the gospel, and and one of the things I I don't intend to do as we go through Matthew is to spend a lot of time looking at the other gospels. I want to try to stay pretty close to Matthew's gospel as a a whole and and what his intentions and purposes are as, as we study this book. But if you do remember in Luke's account, he records how that 
Elizabeth was six months pregnant with John the Baptist um, when Mary received the visitation from the angel and the announcement, and it says that she very quickly went to go stay with her cousin and spent three months with her. So she would have gone from Nazareth to Judea to the hill country, as he says, for three months. That would have been from the time that she first found out when the angel gave the announcement, and then she would have returned to Nazareth about three months pregnant. And so this is, this is what is being referred to when it says that she was found to be with child. Obviously then um, she would, you know, Joseph would see her at this point and would know um, at this point. So she, after she left Nazareth and come back, this was how Joseph found or discovered her to be with child. And, and then Matthew adds um, two other details here in verse 18, which we'll, we'll come back to. Um, he says that it was before Joseph and Mary had been together as husband and wife and that it was the child that, that was uh, within her was conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. But again, we'll, we'll come back to that um, in a few moments. Verse number 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Now, Joseph obviously concluded some unfaithfulness on the part of Mary, and Matthew states that Joseph was a just man. Now, if we're just looking at the technical meaning of, of the word, we sort of get one idea. Um, but if we think about it in terms of a Hebrew saying, which was a common saying um, to describe someone in that manner, it was saying that he was, he was a faithful man. He was, he was keeping God's word. And it also would indicate that he was a merciful man. And I think that's brought out especially by what follows in the verse. So to put her away meant to divorce her, to give her a bill of divorcement. But Matthew says that Joseph didn't want to subject her to a public trial. And you can read about some of those in the law, how that the woman would be brought to um, um, you know, before the priest and at the gates of the city and all that sort of thing. And, but he didn't want to subject her to a public trial, it says, so he sought to do it privately. Now, according to the law and the customs of the day, a private divorcement could be accomplished, and it could be accomplished by giving the written bill of divorcement in the presence of two witnesses. And you can see some reference to that in Numbers chapter number 5. And this is what Joseph thought to do. He wasn't going to bring her to public trial, um, but wanted to write and give her the bill of divorcement privately with two witnesses to, um, to break the marriage contract. Then we come to the next part, beginning in there in verse number 20, where Joseph receives an angelic visitor. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Now Matthew states that an angel or a messenger from the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now this is another link between Genesis and the opening of Matthew. So if you recall, as we went through um, the book of Genesis, we made note of the fact that there are 21 times in the Bible that God gives revelation by dreams, by a dream to someone. 
Um, Ten of those times are in the book of Genesis. We looked at each of those as we were going through. Two of those times, two out of those ten, were actually dreams that were given by another man named Joseph, who was the son of Jacob, and obviously not this Joseph. But two of them were dreams given to Joseph, and four of them were dreams that were interpreted by Joseph. So there were so six out of the ten were given in some way in connection with Joseph. Now, the rest of them in the Old Testament is one in the book of Judges, one in the book of 1 Kings, and three in Daniel. And that leaves us with six dreams, six more times in the Bible that God gives revelation to someone in a dream. And all six of those are in the book of Matthew. And so we will encounter them as we study in the book of Matthew. You're also going to find that four of them are dreams that are given to Joseph. And we get the first um, of those here. Five out of the six in Matthew all have to do with the birth of Jesus Christ. And actually the sixth and final one that is given has to do with his death. So as we observed in the book of Genesis, Revelation given by dreams in the Bible, is very rare. It's not something that happened all the time and happened with everyone. It was very rare. Most of the times when the dreams that we read of are direct and explicit commands. In other words, they're not some sort of um, secret code words that have to be decoded um, or anything like that. They're just clear, direct commands. That's the type uh, of what Joseph receives, and that's the way that most of them are. And even if you look at the dreams that involved some sort of symbols, those dreams being interpreted had a direct and a concrete correlation to some reality so that they were indeed clear and, of course, once interpreted, made perfect sense. They occur also, these dreams that that God gives, they occur at some significant point in redemptive history. And that is true of all the dreams that we read about in the Bible where God communicates with someone that way. So we have this dream. It's, we're told, Matthew tells us, that an angel from the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. And he addressed Joseph as a son of David. Now obviously he's connecting Uh, Joseph here with the previous genealogy that had been given. And he tells Joseph that he doesn't need to fear to complete the marriage with Mary because the baby is by or from the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The angel prophesies and commands. Joseph is to name the baby son Jesus. Now, Jesus is actually was a common name among the Jews, again, equivalent to Joshua uh, that you read about, Joshua under Moses and Joshua later with Zerubbabel and some other Joshuas that didn't seem to be particularly significant, but we did get their name in, in the Old Testament. So it was a rather common name. Um, among the Jews in that time. But the reason why that he is to receive this particular name is then explained to Joseph. It is said that it's because he shall save his people 
from their sins. And the, the name um, Yeshua, Yehoshua, uh, means something along the line of, of the Lord saves or the Lord is Savior, something um, along that line. And it said that he will save his people from their sins. So this isn't going to be any common Joshua. This is going to be a particular one. In fact, it's going to be the one sent from God, the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. He will save his people from their sins. Now, the word for people that is used here is laos in the Greek. And it is in the singular, which is a little strange because people in English is a plural word. Uh, In a singular sense, though, it refers to a people group or a tribe, or a nation. And so that's what this term Laos means. Now, in the Old Testament, and particularly in our psalm study, we have noted how that the use of the Hebrew word am, which is the equivalent of the Greek word Laos, when used with a possessive pronoun referring to God, always refers to the nation of Israel. So whenever we read his people, thy people, my people, something like that, that use that term am in the singular, it always refers to the nation of Israel. So we should then expect this to continue into the New Testament. And that is actually what we find. So the Greek equivalent Laos is, um, again, it's what was used by the Septuagint translators to translate that term am in the Old Testament. They used laos in in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we can also find that when this word is used, when it's used in the singular, when it's used with the possessive pronoun referring to God, that it also seems to always refer to the nation of Israel. So here's a few of those places. Luke chapter 1, verse 68 and verse 77. Luke chapter 7 and verse 16, Romans chapter 15 and verse 10, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 30, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 6, and Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 10. Now when you add to this, he shall save his people from their sins. When you add to this the fact that he's also giving a quote from Psalm 130 and verse number 8, a psalm concerning the divine visitation that reads, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That Matthew is quoting this part of this psalm, he shall save his people from their sins. Actually, the angel is is speaking this to Joseph, and Matthew is reporting it. So the angel is clearly talking about the role of Jesus as Israel's Messiah and his mission to save Israel, as has been prophesied throughout the Old Testament, beginning with Moses. And then when you look forward in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus clarified how that he would save his people from their sins by giving himself as a ransom. And that's in Matthew chapter 20 and verse number 28. Then we come to verse number 22. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So Matthew makes a note here that all this was done. All of this happened 
and, and came about the way that it did in order to fulfill Old Testament scripture written by the prophet Isaiah. Now, he quotes from Isaiah. Actually, he quotes from Isaiah 7 and verse number 14. I'm going to read um, Isaiah 7, verses 10 to 16, just to grab a little bit of context, and we'll look at, at that passage for just a moment. So, Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 16. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may... Uh, know to refuse the evil and choose the good for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings now this prophecy that was given to Ahaz Ahaz was the king of Judah um, at the time and he had formed a secret alliance at least he thought it was secret but the Lord knew about it and the Lord told Isaiah about it as well He had formed a secret alliance with the nation of Assyria. Assyria was a rising world power at that time in the Middle East. And he had formed a secret alliance with Assyria in order to counter the threat from the alliance between Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the nation of Syria. And they had joined together in an effort to depose Ahaz from the throne and install a vassal king over the southern kingdom of Judah that they could control. So that was their secret plot, and Ahaz found out about it. And so Ahaz had a secret plot that he's going to join with this nation of Assyria. Now the problem is that the Lord, through Isaiah, had repeatedly told Ahaz not to form any alliances with foreign nations, that he was to trust the Lord, and he was told repeatedly that this plot by Israel and Syria would fail. It would not succeed. So this sign had a particular significance in that day. So there was a woman who we do not know, and presumably someone whom Ahaz did know, who would give birth to a son But before the sun was grown, Israel and Syria would come to nothing and would never carry out their plot against Ahaz. Now that was the immediate or near fulfillment. And sometimes when we talk about prophecy, we have to talk about immediate or near fulfillment or partial fulfillment and then um, future fulfillment or full fulfillment, something along that line. So oftentimes you're going to find that prophecy has what could be referred to as a double meaning in the sense that there was something immediate that would happen that actually confirms what the ultimate prophecy was about. So this happened, however that it happened, it happened in Ahaz's day, and it was a sign. But if you noticed in that reading in Isaiah, this was not just a sign that was given to Ahaz. It was also a sign given to the house of David. And Matthew is clearly stating that it was fulfilled in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Now, there's much that is made of the fact 
that the Hebrew word that is used back in Isaiah 7, 14 simply means a young woman of marriageable age and doesn't necessarily imply virginity. And it seems like there was some major uproar uh, a few decades ago. Uh, some Bible translation was being worked on, and they was actually, I think, going to translate that word young maid or something like that, and all this big uproar, and there's all kinds of back and forth. There's a lot that's made out of that. So the word that is used there, and there is a different word in, in the Hebrew that would mean virginity more exclusively, but the word that's used can mean that. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to, but it certainly can, and it does in certain contexts in the Bible. But the Septuagint translators, when they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek, they used here um, this term, parthenos, which they use here in, in Matthew, that's used here in Matthew chapter number 2, um, which means virgin much more clearly than that Hebrew term. Now, regardless of all that, though, regardless of all that, the context in Matthew makes clear with several statements that Mary was indeed a virgin and didn't know a man until she came together with her husband Joseph after the birth of Jesus. So you notice those little comments that are thrown in there. Um, in, In verse number 18, he says, Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. So he, he describes Joseph and Mary as being espoused or engaged in that second stage of the marriage. So not yet having consummated the marriage, not yet having lived together as husband and wife, not completed um, that entire process. And before she, they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Joseph was also told um, by the angel in verse number 20, that that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she'll bring forth a son, and you'll call his name Jesus. And then furthermore, Matthew says that all this was done, that what was spoken by the prophet would be fulfilled, that a virgin shall be with child and bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us, which is certainly true in the case of Jesus. Not only that, but right at the very end, um, he tells us in verse number 25 that Joseph did, knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So maybe you've been exposed to some of that controversy concerning that word and that term and whether the virgin birth was really a virgin birth or not. Um, but the Bible is clear that the birth of Jesus Christ was indeed a virgin birth by Mary and the Holy Spirit. Now, Let's um, continue on here. Verse number 24. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife. So Joseph wakes up from the dream. And here we, again, we see him being consistently faithful. He did as he was commanded to do, and he proceeded with the marriage to Mary. Verse 25. And he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So he makes again, he makes the point that they hadn't come together, they didn't come together as husband and wife until after Jesus was born, and also noting that Joseph was faithful to name him Jesus just as the angel had commanded him to do in the dream. So by the time that we get to the end of chapter 1, we realize that Matthew has provided three witnesses for the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. The first of those being his legal genealogy, that there was a a real 
credible um, record of his descent all the way from David, and then, of course, from there back to um, Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. So the the first authentication of his messiahship is his legal genealogy. He truly was a son of David. This is emphasized further when Joseph is spoken to as a son of David. The second witness that Matthew gives us is the sign miracle of the virgin birth. He says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, and so on. So a sign miracle. And what we find when we think about miracles in the Bible, and we're going to encounter um, quite a number of them as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, what, what we see when we encounter miracles in the Bible is we see some sort of supernatural act that is a confirmation of something. It's a confirmation, of, an authentication of a person in their office or their capacity as being called and sent by God. Um, it's a confirmation in the word that has been spoken, that, that has been given. In other words, it, it, it confirms um, revelation. So that's why they're referred to as sign miracles or signs or sign gifts or things of that nature. It's because they are confirming signs. In other words, the miracles themselves are not the end point. They're not like just some sort of, you know, super great trick or act of magic or something like that. They, they, are, they have a purpose. They have a point. They are confirming something. And in, in this case, this, this sign miracle of the virgin birth is a confirmation of Jesus of Nazareth, born to Mary, the, the wife of Joseph, as the Messiah sent from God. The third witness is the fulfilled prophecy. This prophecy of Isaiah that we, that we looked at was written 700 years before Jesus was born. And, and nevertheless, we see it fulfilled in that time, right around the first, right around the first century um, A.D. when it was fulfilled. So he gives us three witnesses, legal genealogy with descent from David, the sign miracle of the virgin birth, and the fulfilled prophecy that was given 700 years before through the prophet Isaiah. Now we could say that the wait for the Messiah had certainly been long. I mean, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and verse number 15, when God gave the promise of a seed of the woman. And it had been many millennia since, since then to this point in, that Matthew's writing about in this gospel. But Matthew is also demonstrating through all of these things, the fulfillment of prophecy, the link with the Old Testament, the history of Israel, all of these things that he's bringing together. What's he showing us? He's showing us that Jesus came into the world according to God's time, God's appointed time. And, of course, that's stated explicitly in other places in the New Testament. So these histories that he's writing about, 
these people and the lives that they lived and their relationships and their children and grandchildren and, and so on, all these things that, that we're reading about in this, they're not just random events that have been seized upon to make something out of, but they are divinely planned and ordered events to bring God's purpose to fulfillment. And Matthew is demonstrating that, is communicating that to us here at the very beginning of this gospel. So not only do they give us understanding of what happened, but they also give us hope for future fulfillment of remaining promises. And of course, when Jesus comes into the world, and as we go through the gospel, we're going to see many, many prophecies of Scripture being fulfilled. And of course, there are still yet others that remain that were not fulfilled in his first coming, but will be fulfilled in his second.